So it's exciting. Let's pray and we'll jump into Romans chapter 15. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for your word that we're about to open. And thank you for the gifts that you've given Tanner to share with us as well. And I pray, Lord, that we would always see you working in the midst of so many people. And whether in our church, on the campus that's just across the street, or even outside in the outskirts of this community in this region, that we would be blown away by how you work and you move, and that we would want to be a part of that. Help us to see it, Lord, and help us to dive in. We love you. Amen. So Paul, in chapter 15, is beginning the wrap-up. Chapter 16 is an entire personal greeting, and you even get to see in 6.22 who actually wrote the letter. Um, Paul used people to help dictate. He would speak, and people would write it down for him. And so you see very personal things happening at this end of the letter. So halfway in 15, in verse 14, he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and and able to instruct one another. So he tells them, he sets them up pretty succinctly, that I'm for you. I don't have bad things for you. There's some stuff I needed to help you with, some stuff I needed to help clarify for you. You wrote a letter to me, and I'm responding to you. But I'm for you. And you have all that it takes. I'm satisfied about you. Now that's an interesting thing, because a lot of Paul's letters, when he writes them, he's not very satisfied. The church in Philippi, but the, when you look at First and Second Thessalonians, the, the letters to the church in Corinth, the letter to the church in Colossae, I mean, he's consistently saying, you got some issues, and you need to fix them. But to the church in Rome, he's saying, I'm satisfied with you. That you're full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So he's saying, it doesn't require me. I don't have to be there. Paul's never been to this church in Rome. He's never been near it. He wants to. We see that later in 15. He wants to visit them. But he's not, he's not been a part of their growth. But he knows people have been there, have helped them, discipled them. You're full of knowledge. And he says, you have what it takes. You can instruct one another. You don't need Paul, the great pastor, to do it. You all have the knowledge. Teach each other. It's a good model for getting yourself out of a job, which is really every pastor's hope and dream is that the church would flourish and thrive and grow, and then you wouldn't necessarily need a pastor. Like it's there, When Matt Chandler, which we've watched the Philippian study um, a few times when Matt Chandler did it, after he did the study in Philippians, it was a few months later, he gets cancer. He has brain cancer. Massive tumor has to be removed. He finds out on Thursday, and it's being cut out on the next Friday. It wasn't like, hey, it was like, and he didn't know if he was going to wake up and be able to talk or do anything else. And so the church was reeling because he's a very charismatic leader. He's a very like powerful preacher of the word and still being used by God. He's cancer-free for the last five years after the treatment. Great things. But in that month, the church was kind of rocked. So John Piper, that knows him, came to preach. And he thought he was supposed to show up and like be the one to tell them, it's all going to be okay and you're going to be fine. And they were ministering to him. They were quite confident to be fine. If something bad happens to Matt, like we know, the, we know the gospel, we know there'll be someone else to come and lead us, it's fine. And so he, like one of the greatest testaments to his leadership, Matt Chandler's leadership in that church, is that you have another leader come in and go, you guys are doing great, you understand the gospel, you know how God works, you know how things are happening, you know how great it is. That's awesome. And so I wonder, like, do we have that in us? that we're always looking to build into the next generation? and Or do we hold gr- tight grip to it and say, no, I, I put this together. I did this. I'm awesome. I've been here. I've done that. I, 
or are we building in to the next crew, the next crew that's going to come after us? It might be when we go home to be with the Lord at 85, 90 years old, or it could be when the car goes off the road on the summit. You don't know. So we should be about building into the next generation, and Paul's leading into that. I'm satisfied with you guys. That would be a great testimony for all of us to have the Lord say, I'm satisfied with you. You guys know it. You're teaching each other. You're growing together. That's amazing. And that's the heart of discipleship. He's confident that this church is going to be flourishing. Paul says, thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Find my spot. I'll just read it. To preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build someone else's foundation, but as written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So Paul says the ultimate goal is I'm, I'm happy with you because you know what you're doing, but my goal is to go teach the gospel to people who've never known. And it should be your, God, your, your claim and it should be your desire too. He then goes on to say, I'm going to come visit you. And he has a prayer. Please, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you. Amen. So he's saying, please let the Lord free me from these people here because I want to come be with you. But we know from verse, where's it at? Verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Like Paul was always thinking about the next place that needs to hear the truth of the gospel. Please let the Lord release me from this area so that I can come visit with you for a while and then I'm going to Spain. Did Paul make it to Spain? So his passion, his dream, when he wrote this letter to the church in Rome, as he's sitting in Corinth, writing this letter, he wanted to go to them, and God had completely different plans. But look at his passion. He had a passion to preach the gospel where Christ hasn't been named. He wanted to go to the ends of the earth to preach the gospel. What a beautiful testimony of Paul's life. Man transformed, hostile to the gospel. We would call him a terrorist today, killing Christians, or at least actively involved in killing them. He's then converted in a miraculous way. He becomes one of the most voracious teachers and preachers of the gospel, and he has a constant passion in his heart. i got to go where Jesus isn't known. What a testimony to get out of our comfort zones. So now we're going to get Tanner out of his comfort zone. His first sermon in a church. So, I'll turn it over to Tanner. Thank you guys for having me. I'm, I'm not so familiar with using a microphone, so please, if I'm talking too quietly or too loud, just somebody holler at me and let me know what I should do. I'm going to move this over also because I'm constrained to this sheet of notes. So this is also my first first time coming to a service here at First Christian, and I'm very grateful for you guys allowing me to be up here speaking to you. Uh, when we were taking communion, I was reminded that the body of Christ transcends church boundaries, church walls, and, and, and there's a huge community of believers in, in, in Laramie and in Wyoming, and I'm grateful to be a part of that, and it's a great reminder to come here and see all of you guys taking communion with me to know that 
we are all part of the same team. We're all under the same banner of Christ. All right. I know we've prayed a few times already today, but I'd like to pray again if that's all right with you guys. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Lord, thank you for all the people that you've brought here today. It's amazing to see how you can come into a community and you permeate the community in so many different ways, Lord, whether that be on a university campus or in churches or even in in homes throughout the community. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to speak. God, I pray that the words that I say today would be your words and, and not my own. And Lord, I pray for the people in the congregation that you would be working in, in their hearts as well. Thank you for this moment, I pray. Um, yeah, thank you for this day. Yeah, I pray. Amen. All right, so I'd like to begin by, by reminding you of something you may not have seen for a while. Perhaps you remember the, the D.A.R.E. campaign. Oh, sorry. There we go. The D.A.R.E. campaign, which was that, that anti-smoking, anti-drugs, anti-violence campaign that was in schools for so long, uh, I don't know, years ago. But, I mean, if you think about it, you haven't seen it in a while. Now, this was, this was a program that was implemented, like, kindergarten through 12th grade. It was pretty expensive. It cost about $700 million to $1.3 billion annually to fund these programs and to, to run them in schools. And they were run throughout the country. Almost every state, almost every school had a D.A.R.E. program. Unfortunately, they stopped these programs, and, and that was because they were completely ineffective. <laughs> in, in, in the year 2000, a, a Seattle-based research group, medical research group, released a project called the Hutchinson Smoking Prevention Project. It was a very rigorous and scientific survey which they had test schools and control schools where they designed and implemented a, a, new, a new smoking prevention plan plan to see if it would actually impact the students, if it actually changed their behavior in regards to smoking. Dr. Richard Clayton, another, another doctor, said it's ushered in a new standard of scientific rigor for prevention research. It was extremely meticulously conceived. It was, um, it was very engaging at every level from third grade all the way to senior year of high school. And it was, it was scientifically accurate. They would survey students, they were third graders, all the way up to two years past college to see how they would react to, so, how, how they were involved in smoking, how, how they were affected by their peers through smoking, things like that. And interestingly, between the control group and, and the test group, there was virtually no difference in, in the amount of smoking that the, the students were engaged in. No difference. It was about 0.3%, which is completely negligible when you consider the size and magnitude of this study. But why does this matter to us? I, I wonder why I'm talking about smoking at a church. Well, I think that we tend to do the same thing when it comes to evangelism. We tend to go for big and flashy programs. We bring in very charismatic speakers. And, and we'll have these large conventions where people come and hear the gospel. And it's almost like a business where we try to take in unbelievers, and then on the other side of the factory, we put out Christians. And it, it, it's very, there's this like, Lifeway Research, which is a Christian research organization, has done some research on high school students, and they found that up to 70% of high school students who are churchgoers in high school, upon graduation, leave the church. That's a huge percentage of students. 70% is very significant. And so it makes me wonder, what is wrong? Why are so many people hearing the gospel 
and still walking away from the church. I mean, they're hearing the gospel. They do know it. People like Billy Graham, the, you hear so many good stories, so many testimonies of people who were changed. Their lives were changed by his crusades and the things that he did. The way he shared the gospel of Christ to so many people. But you also see so many times that people hear the gospel and they walk away from it. They'll hear it and they walk away. It's like the, the parable of the soil on the, on the dirt. They're like the ones who are, they, it's, like the, it's like the seed that's sown onto, onto the rocks where it takes root but then is then swept away. Now evangelism is a good thing. I don't want you guys to think that I'm, I, I'm bashing evangelism in any way. Absolutely important. In fact, it's the very necessary first step to showing someone the gospel, to making a disciple. The person has to hear the gospel, and that's done through evangelism. But it's only the first step in a process. And that we need disciples. We're, we're making converts through evangelism, but what we need are disciples. We need a process by which we can take converts and turn them into disciples. And, and what that is, is that's called discipleship. And that's what we're going to examine today. We're going to look at the the blueprint of discipleship, if you will, as laid out in 2 Timothy verse 2, or chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So if you don't mind, I'd like to read this scripture. So it says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound, as cha- bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So immediately upon reading this passage, we can see three components of what discipleship should look like. We see, first of all, how discipleship works. And then we also see the qualifications of a disciple maker. And finally, we see the power behind discipleship. So once again, how discipleship works, the qualifications of a disciple maker, and the power of discipleship. But before we get into those things, let's take a look at the background of 2 Timothy uh, and, and the context of why Paul is saying this. Well, the first thing that we can see is that 2 Timothy is one of three pastoral epistles. The other two are 1 Timothy and Titus. And basically what this means is that Paul is writing to someone who has pastoral oversight of a church. Essentially, they're pastors of their own churches, and Paul is writing them, encouraging them, teaching them how to run a church. But also, these pastoral epistles discuss Christian living and doctrine and leadership, which are things that apply to all of us no matter who we are, things that we need to be familiar with as believers. We can also notice from the context that this is, this is Paul's last letter. On his, he, he was in Rome when he wrote this during, during the reign of Emperor Nero, who was infamous for his persecution of the Christians. He would mercilessly, mercilessly kill Christians, and he would persecute them relentlessly. And this was when... Paul was in Rome. He was in prison there, awaiting his death, awaiting his execution. We also notice that uh, Paul's friends have deserted him. Deserted him. In, in 2 Timothy 1.15, you see Paul say, You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. And later in verse 4.10, he says, For Demas, because he loved the world, 
has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. So whether it be for other ministry opportunities or because of, of reasons like they of like because of reasons like loving the world, all of Paul's disciples, all of the people that he had been pouring into his friends and his family had left him and are and are elsewhere now, leaving Paul alone in Rome awaiting his execution. And so with that in mind, we can look at the theme of faithfulness and, and the fact that this is as a last word from a spiritual father to a spiritual son. It's very personally written. The tone of the book is very personal because Paul is awaiting his death and he's writing to Timothy and he's writing to he's asking Timothy to characterize his life in a certain way. Paul knows that he's no longer going to be a leader in the church and he needs somebody to step up and fill that role for him. And he's telling Timothy how to do that. So now that we've looked at this, let's look at the first part of 2 Timothy 2. It says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. At the very beginning of this chapter, you see Paul talk about strength coming from the grace that is in Christ. But what does this mean, the grace that is in Christ Jesus? If you think about Romans 1.16, he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power for salvation to all who believe. It is the power for salvation. That is what this grace is talking about, I believe. Is the, the grace is the salvation that Jesus gives us through his work, through his death and his resurrection on the cross. And it strengthens us by, gives us pur- by giving us purpose. It allows us to have something to live for. It also shows us that we have nothing to lose. When, when we can rely on God's strength, we know that our work is not in vain. Our labor is not in vain. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As believers, we are able to give our lives to Christ and we are crucified with him and so we are able to live, live our life by faith in the Son of God because he loved us and because he gave himself for us. We have purpose, we have meaning, and we don't have anything to lose through discipleship, through evangelism. He also shows in verse 2 a... Excuse me. He also shows in verse 2 here kind of a, a, a generational tree of what discipleship should look like. As you see here, Paul says, and what you, Timothy, have heard from me, Paul, in the presence of many witnesses... And trust then to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is Paul's designation of what discipleship should look like. It's generational and it, it's, it, it multiplies also. Chuck Smith, who's, another, who's a biblical scholar, says that if you effectively disciple 10 people every three years, it would take only 27 years to reach the entire population of the world. 27 years isn't that long when you consider that the population of the world is over 7 billion people. It's pretty amazing. You also see that Paul's asking to be mimicked. He says, he says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men. He's saying to Timothy that you should be living a life that is above reproach, beyond reproach, that you should be trying to live in such a way that people want to mimic you, that they want to do the things that you are doing. But Jesus, I think, was the perfect example of what discipleship should look like. Jesus did everything with purpose. From the beginning, from the moment he was born to the day that he died, everything he did was done with the intention of reaching the lost people and showing them that God wants them to be with him. 
His concern was not necessarily with the programs to reach the multitudes, but rather with the men that the multitudes would follow. He spent so much time pouring into his disciples. Jesus was an itinerant preacher, traveling from town to town, preaching sermons and, and teaching people along the way. But his disciples were always with him, and he took common everyday moments to show them what it means to live the Christian life, to show them how to build the church. But what we also know is that there was much suffering along the way. Jesus endured tremendous suffering, not just physically, not just psychologically, but emotionally too, with, with people deserting him, one of his closest people deserting him, and in fact all of them at the very end of his life. So that brings us to the next part of this, of this passage. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. You see immediately that Paul introducing introduces suffering. He says, share in suffering, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Not only here is he saying that we need to be sharing in Christ's suffering that he experienced in his life, but also he's he's telling Timothy, he's like, share in my suffering because I'm here alone in Rome and I need somebody to help me. I need I need I need your company. I need your encouragement. As Christians we're called to we're we're called to bear each other's burdens. We're called to help each other in times of need. And, and suffering is not a question in the Christian life. Suffering is part of Christian living. And Paul emphasizes that here in, the first, or in, in verse 3. But he also gives us three analogies of what discipleship is like. First, he gives us the analogy of the soldier, then the athlete, then the farmer. Now, there's some, some observations we can make about these right away. The soldier is somebody who understands a chain of command. They're very obedient. When their superior officer tells them to go do something, they go do that because it's an order. They know that if they disobey the order, there are consequences for that. Also, soldiers endure very rigorous and extensive training. If they didn't, if they slacked off on their training, when the battle came, they would not only endanger themselves, but they would endanger those around them. And finally, we see that in the military, there is a hierarchy. There are young soldiers and then older soldiers of higher rank, all the way up to a general. The, the body of Christ is similar to this, I believe. We have young believers who are new to the faith, people that are recently converted, and then older, more experienced believers, all the way up to the general, who I believe would be Christ Jesus. We all, we all report to Jesus in the end. But we also have responsibility as we become more mature believers to help the younger believers to know what it means to be a Christian, to walk the Christian life, to be disciples. Then we also can look at the athlete. The athlete is someone else who also endures very rigorous training. But they do it for a different reason. Instead of doing it to please his enlisting officer or to find glory on the battlefield, they do it for a goal. They have a prize that they want to win, that they want to, that they want to gain. I was an athlete myself. I used to wrestle here, wrestle here at the University of Wyoming. So I, I, I kind of understand what this is like to train as an athlete. Um, I knew that when I would go compete in front of a crowd, when I would go compete at the, at the Uniwayo Stadium or, or at, a, at an opposing team's stadium, 
I knew that it was much more intense and much more physically and emotionally and psychologically demanding than it would be training in the practice room. So when I, when I trained, we would have to train for far longer than a wrestling match would actually last. And we'd have to train far harder than we would actually compete in a wrestling match because we knew that things were different when competition actually arose. And it's the same way here for the athlete. They fixate on a goal and they train extra hard. They train harder and harder because they know that things are more difficult when, when the situation for competition actually occurs. Finally, we can look at the farmer. The farmer also must endure very hard work. They go through extremely difficult conditions and hard work so that they can develop a crop. But the goal that they strive for is much less glamorous than that of the athlete or of the soldier. Rather than, rather than competing for a medal or a prize or for glory on the battlefield or to please an enlisting officer, they simply work hard to have a, to have a living, to make a living. I think of all those times this spring when we were here sitting in church, but it was snowing outside and the conditions were terrible. And I thought about the ranchers who had to go out early in the morning and make sure that all their cattle were safe and not dying in the snow. Because if they did die, that would be a loss of livelihood for them. One missed day of work for a farmer could be a failed crop and, and could, mean, could mean that his family goes hungry in the, the next year. But all of these have a common factor as well, and that is single-mindedness. The soldier single-mindedly trains, as does the athlete, and the farmer single-mindedly works hard. All of these also endure suffering, but when they have suffering and when they have hard work involved, they put it out of their mind and single-mindedly pursue the goal that they have before them. It's the same thing. We have to do the same thing as believers. When suffering arises in the Christian life, which it probably will, which it will arise in your, in your life, we need to put that out of our mind and, rem and remember the work that Christ did for us on the cross. We have to keep that at the forefront of our mind. But I don't believe that these are all examples meant to be seen as separate, separate analogies of what the Christian life is like or what discipleship is like. I think that Paul put them together as complementary examples. Let me explain what I mean. First, we have the soldier. And I believe that the soldier is similar to the missionary in the Christian life. People that go out on the front line that are, that are striving to share the gospel to people who are not only unfamiliar with it, but also hostile to, towards it. People that go to the 1040 window uh, or, or to China, all these different places where people don't even know the gospel and where you could be imprisoned or even killed for speaking it. People like Jim Elliott, who died preaching to the Huarani Indians in Ecuador and is famous for saying, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Another example is Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor is a missionary who spent 50 years in China preaching in an environment that is hostile to Christianity. 50 years, that's essentially his entire life. And another example um, comes from the, the famous movie, Chariots of Fire. You're probably familiar with Eric Liddell as the person who wouldn't run his race on a Sunday. He was a 100-meter sprinter, a Scottish 100-meter sprinter. And when he found out that his race was going to be run on a Sunday, he decided that he wasn't going to run it because it conflicted with his Christian view of the Sabbath. So he eventually ran a 400-meter race instead and still won the gold medal. But what most people don't know about Eric Liddell is that after his career as an Olympic runner, he was a missionary in China. In fact, he spent the remainder of his life after the 1924 Olympics in China ministering to people that didn't know the gospel. 
it's amazing. You hear a lot of amazing stories about him during his time in China. For example, there were some people that knew him while he was a minister out in China, and they, they remember saying that they had no idea he was a prodigious athlete, that they had no idea that he was an amazing runner who had won a gold medal. They just knew him as a great guy, a nice guy who, who would teach them English. And then, and then what's also incredible about Eric Liddell is that after, during World War II, after his time in China, during World War II, he was captured by the Japanese and put in an internment camp, along with many other uh, Westerners who were in China during that period. And, and he continued to preach the gospel, even in those conditions, until the day he died of a brain tumor in that internment camp. Amazing. Powerful people on the front line serving God. But then you also have the athlete, who is like the scholar. These are, these are the people who are meticulous about the rules and the doctrine, those who scrutinize over the Bible every day and who are very familiar with the history of the church and, and Greek and Hebrew, the apologists, theologians, language and history scholars, people that learn the Bible as best as they can so that they can teach us, the layman, about what is actually being said there or what actually happened in, in the history of the church. Some of these people are people like John MacArthur or Wayne Grudem, John Piper or, or James White, people that you're probably familiar with if you've been in Christian circles long enough. But I'd like to give a personal example with this to maybe uh, to express what this means. You see here in the verse it says, it's a, it says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. I'm a wrestler. I understand the strategies and rules and techniques of wrestling. So I can compete, I can compete better as a wrestler than I can as, say, a basketball player. But in both sports, I can work hard. I can, I can run up and down the court. I can, I can compete with a lot of heart and, and desire. But unless I know the rules as a basketball player, I'm still going to foul out because I don't, know the, I don't know what constitutes a foul. And I'm not going to make very many shots because I'm not very practiced at shooting a basketball. A good basketball coach would not recruit me as a basketball player. But these are, these are both separate paradigms, and I, don't, I think Paul means for, means for them to be used together. Because when, when one of them is used on its own, it tends to create a perversion of discipleship or a perversion of the gospel. For example, if you have too much of the soldier paradigm, what you'll end up with is a works-based faith, saying that I need to be going out into the field, I need to be being a missionary all the time, uh, fasting, praying, all these things constantly so that I can get to heaven. Based, I'm, I'm, basically, I'm saved because of the things that I do. I do this stuff for Jesus, and I do it, and that's what saves me. That's not the gospel. It forgets grace. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, and we all need grace. An example of this, a practical example of this, is the prosperity gospel. Maybe you've heard of it. This is the gospel that says, in accordance to my faith, I will have blessings. It says that if I'm very faithful, I will have health and wealth and prosperity. And it's a false gospel because it teaches people that their life has to be going good to be a Christian. As we discussed earlier, suffering is a part of Christianity. It's a part of the Christian life. And if that's not present, if that's not something that's common, then it's wrong. You think, you think of all kinds of people in, in, in the Bible who suffered tremendously for, for Christ. For example, Stephen the martyr and Paul himself both suffered very 
tremendously, even losing their lives for the gospel, that doesn't seem like health and wealth to me. But then you can also have too much of the athlete. Too much of the athlete or the scholar will create unloving, cold, and and unforgiving bigotry. It, It says that I'm the only one who's right. I'm the only one that knows the right answers. And it excludes everybody else. John Bloom, who works with John Piper uh, with the Desiring God webpage, says that biblical knowledge is far better than gold when it fuels our trust in God. Otherwise, it only fuels our pride. We need, when we're studying the scriptures, when we're examining doctrine, we need to remember that it's designed to help us, to, it's designed to fuel our trust in God not to make us win arguments or to have power over other people, but to trust God more and to know him more. But Paul takes these two separate paradigms, and I think he radically synthesizes them by showing us, by showing us that discipleship is characterized not only by a foundational, strong knowledge of Scripture, but also by bold and courageous endeavors at God's command. Both of these things are tremendously important in the Christian life. Because if we spend hours and hours evangelizing to people that don't know the gospel but have bad doctrine, that's going to be worthless evangelism. But if we also spend tremendous amounts of time becoming well-versed in doctrine but don't share anybody what we learn, that knowledge isn't worth anything to us either. And I think that at this point we should look at the third analogy and remember that the farmer is still part of this. Because many of us because many of us have good doctrine sometimes, and many of us have, have good, good ministry sometimes, but what the farmer represents, I believe, is, pers- is perseverance in both of these areas. We need to persevere in, having, in continuing to grow in our faith and learning more about the Bible, and we need to persevere in our ministry to other people. A lot of times, discipleship takes a very long time, and I'm young, so I don't really understand this. But I believe that discipleship is a process that last years and years. I don't know if this is true, but it's something that I heard recently, that it takes eight years for a Japanese person to come to know Christ, on average. Eight years. That's, that's almost longer than I've been in school. That's amazing. You have to commit your life to people if you want, if you want them to know Christ, if you want them to become disciples. And that's why the farmer is so important. We need to persevere in having good doctrine and, and, and good ministry. And Jesus, I think, again, is the perfect example of this. Jesus not only had perfect doctrine, but he had perfect purpose, and he had both tirelessly. Like I said, from from the day he was born to the day he died, he lived his entire life with purpose. I think this is where we should look at the final part of this passage. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The power of discipleship comes from God. The power of discipleship, discipleship is enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We talked about Jesus a moment ago. Jesus was God. How are we supposed to emulate the God of the universe who, who created everything, who is by definition perfect in everything he does. How are we, just humans, supposed to mimic that? Well, we need to 
rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. In John, in John 16, 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Here he's talking to the disciples who, who, are, who are mourning the fact that Jesus is going to go away, that he's going to die and leave them. But Jesus says, it's better for you that I send the Holy Spirit back because the Holy Spirit is going to empower you in ways that I could not. It's better for us to have the Holy Spirit in our lives than to even be walking side by side with Jesus, according to that verse. See, because we're going to have ministry errors, we're going to have flimsy doctrine, we're going to have a loss of passion, but those things are enabled, or, but despite those things, the word of God is not bound, and the Holy Spirit enables ministry. C.S. Lewis says, in fact, the value of an individual does not lie in him. He's capable of receiving value, and he receives it by union with Christ. We, we receive our value and our purpose through union with Christ. And that is where we are able to have ministry because as humans, we do mess up. We do, we do fall short so often. We make mistakes. And, and, and we're not able to have good ministry all the time. But even when we fall short, the word of God is not bound. Maybe you guys remember the story of Paul and Silas when they were in the prison in Philippi where, where they were imprisoned and then there was an earthquake and the doors broke open but nobody left and when, the, and when the guard was about to kill himself, Paul said to him, don't leave, we're all still here. Or don't do that, we're all still here. And that man eventually came to know Christ because the Holy Spirit works. Here's a more contemporary example. We've all heard about the Syrian refugees who are being forced out of their homes in the Middle East. I actually have a friend in the university who does a lot of work with, with international ministries, and recently he and a friend of his went down to Fort Collins for a conference about international ministry. And while they were down there, they were speaking with a group of missionaries to Islamic people, and, and they were able to ask the question, how often do you guys see people convert from Islam to Christianity because of your ministry? And almost unanimously, the answer was never. Few people in that group, people that were committed their life, people who had committed their lives to ministering to people in, in the Islamic community, whether that be overseas or in universities here, had hardly seen people turn from Islam to Christianity. But thousands of these, these refugees from the Middle East are becoming Christians and that's because the Holy Spirit is moving in that area. The, the Word of God is not bound. We need to remember that as we go into our own ministries. And we need to know that the Holy Spirit is working, even if we don't see the fruit directly. This all feels pretty abstract, I think. So let's look at this principle in practice. There are three things that we can do, uh, three things that we can see that we can apply in our lives in regards to this passage. First of all, we can seek discipling relationships. As we saw on the tree earlier, we, we, we know that if we're in the position of Timothy, we should be looking for reliable men that we can help learn the gospel and help become better Christians so that they can teach others. But we also need somebody pouring into our own lives. We need mentors. We need to be consistently growing as believers. And at least in the next point, we need to constantly tend our personal relationship with Christ. We can only help somebody come along as far as we ourselves have come. 
So we need to be very disciplined in the spiritual disciplines, things like reading your Bible and praying and engaging in fellowship in the community. And finally, in our ministry and in our daily lives, we remember that discipleship is a function solely of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who empowers us as believers. We need to remember that as we go through our ministry. Now, I understand that many of us will probably never be engaged in full-time ministry, so to speak, or at least paid ministry. But Romans 12.1 says that we're to give our lives as a living sacrifice. Everything that we do is, in fact, our ministry. Whether that be working uh, wherever you work, in the, in, in the office, or, or wrestling as an athlete in the, in, in, in the, through, for the university, or maybe that's as a parent in a family, whatever that looks like for you, our job is to be making disciples. And, and we need to be focused on that. That should be our goal in everything that we do. And, and discipleship is the way that we should be doing that. Thank you for letting me speak today. Thankfully, Tanner is not going anywhere. <clears throat> he is going to be sticking around and going to grad school at the university. Um, he is going to spend his summer at the Navigators STP training program, which he's going to be discipling at least three guys the whole summer and growing them in their faith and their, their um, drive for evangelism. He's spending time with them. And he has a, I mean, he could have applied to a lot of other engineering grad schools. Um, he's from the Colorado area, from Denver area. He could have gone somewhere else, but he has a passion to continue what God's been doing in and on the wrestling team and on the mat. And so, although he's not like, going to be an official coach, he'll hang out, do some training with them, but he has this passion to be with this group of people for an extended period of time. And so, in the last month, um, when it's been talking to Tanner and hanging out with him and helping like this much with his sermon, like I gave him some stuff and he ran with it. It was pretty amazing. We've also, as a constitution committee, have gotten together and talked about our constitution and our church, and we focused more on how are we discipling people more than like, we need to change this comma. It's been more about how do we function. We've been talking about it in staff meetings. We've, that's what led us to talk about having the Eagle Lake on location come um, and do, help us to do evangelism and disciple people in the community. It's been this reoccurring theme that as your pastor, I've probably failed you for the last couple of years of driving this, um, but it's, it's all over. Like we have to be about what Jesus commands us to. Next fall, I've been talking to Aaron with FCA and Adam with the Navigators, that there's something happening on the campus where the staff workers are kind of filtering and going everywhere. And so there's a real need for seniors especially, and some juniors, to be discipled by people, and there's not enough staff. Because what usually happens is the juniors and seniors will disciple freshmen and sophomores. And then as they go up, then the older staff who are, who are work doing it for their job will disciple them. Well, there's become this gap of not enough staff, and there's some juniors and seniors. Well, guess what? There's a whole church full of people here that I think would love some hospitality and invite some college students into their lives. I think you guys would all love that, Right? Shake your heads because you're going to do it. And, and then we're going to try to partner because we, we've tried this before and I think we try to do it on our own and we should partner with the university. There's all these students here that could, would love to just have a meal with one of you. For one of you, as 
Tanner laid out, has had a long walk with the Lord, and they don't need you to be their mom. They don't need you to be their dad. They don't need you to be necessarily their best friend. They need you to be a mature Christian man or woman who's going to say, this is kind of how I've dealt with things. Because in a, a year or two after they're with you, they're going to be out. They're going to be gone. They're somewhere in the world, and maybe they don't have that undergirding, that underpinning. So here at the church, um, I've not been super vocal about it. I think I have for a while, then I stopped saying it, but we're going to say it a lot. There's a lot of things that happen in churches where you have like great vision statements and mission plans, and you have all, and those are great. And they're usually what we, we probably should reshape that as not vision and mission. We should probably say it as, um, this is who we are. Like the mission and vision of the church has been dictated by scripture. But then what we should say is maybe something like, this is our focus, like the, the focus of first Christian church. But the mission and vision of the church has always been the great commandment, Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, right? And then, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the great commandment. That's the heartbeat and the passion and the drive that all of us should have to even call ourselves Christians. If you don't love God, then you're not a Christian. That's kind of fundamental. And then because you love God and he has saved you, you love your neighbor. And where we see those two things not happening, that doesn't mean you don't have fights with your neighbor, or you don't like get frustrated with them, but you should have a love for them. And then we see Jesus tell us at the end, when he's going home to be with the Lord again, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He doesn't say go therefore and convert people. He doesn't say go therefore and you know just send a card. He says, go therefore and make disciples. And he says, all power and authority in heaven and earth have been given to me, saying, I, this is God speaking, here's your marching orders. And then he says, go, baptizing them and teaching them. Now, do we baptize people? Now, this, just for a minute, press pause on how denominations do things differently. We're not talking about confirmation. We're not talking about the Catholic Church or the Presbyterian Church or the Lutheran Church. We're just, do you baptize people before they know Jesus? We don't hear and you have to understand how Presbyterian and Catholic and Lutheran churches do it. That's a promise of dedication and leads to confirmation. So let's do both. We don't confirm someone in a Catholic church or in a Lutheran church or a Presbyterian church. You don't confirm them before they know Jesus. We in this church and in Baptist churches and in Methodist churches, you don't baptize someone before they know Jesus. So it's not that you're going off our marching orders aren't to go off and just make everyone get saved. Our marching orders are to go off and to follow behind the Holy Spirit and say, the Spirit of God is in you, brother. The Spirit of God is in you, sister. Become part of the family. We're going to baptize you. You're part of this family. And then we teach them the scriptures. So what's the plan and mission of the church? Glorify God and make disciples. We bring glory to God by the power of the great commandment, the profession of faith, the loving of our neighbors, shows that we're glorifying God by doing those things. And then we go and make disciples. It's the great, it's the great commission. That's the power of the gospel and Jesus Christ in us. That's what we're supposed to do as a church. The church global, not just first Christian. Then we as a church figure out how we do that. What's God's vision for our church to fulfill this? But where we're not following the great commandment of loving our neighbor and we're not making disciples... We're failing. We're failing. The church as a whole, the church universal, two billion strong, is failing if we're not focusing on these things.
So you hear a lot about all of this over the next couple of this. I just feel in the last month, like yeah, I'm, my wife is always pointing out to me how often I can almost dismiss the Holy Spirit speaking. And part of it is probably because when I first started dating Amber, we were in a charismatic church and they were always talking about, and everybody would say the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit told me I'm supposed to wear blue today. Well, maybe, but you just probably wore blue. I don't, you know, like, so there's always this hyper, like, we're always talking about it. And so I think I put up walls saying, what's the Bible say? What's the, and, but thankfully my wife, as a good gift from God given to me, is always reminding me, hey, bonehead, that was God speaking. How many times do you have to be beat on the head? Well, in the last six weeks or so, it's been the consistent and constant theme. Whether it's in men's Bible study, it's talking to campus pastors, it's hanging out with Tanner, it's this constant, like, we have to be better at how we're discipling people. And I don't have all the answers. I've read lots of books and lots of articles, but we have to pray about how we as a church and as individuals are discipling others. Because what else is there? We have to be discipling others. So thank you, Tanner, for helping light a fire under my backside. Thank you for helping be being a vessel of the Holy Spirit for us and our church, and thank you for sharing. Um, I th- you're going to be around for a couple more years, so we might have you around a little longer to share some more. Let's pray. Dearly Father, thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for um, the power of your word. Thank you for never letting go of those who you've called your own. I pray, Lord, that everyone in this room has felt the powerful embrace of grace that comes only from you. And Lord, if they ha- there's someone in this room that hasn't, I pray you'll begin to show them windows into the truth of the gospel and that you would transform their hearts and make them one of your family. And Lord, for those of us in the room that have been walking with you for a while, help us not to rest on our laurels. Help us to see that there is an entire community surrounding this church that needs the hope and the truth of your son Jesus. And once we proclaim that hope, we don't just leave them alone. We walk alongside them. We hang out with them. We bring them into our lives. We don't live isolated lives watching television for seven hours a day by ourselves. But instead, we invite people into our life, into our story, and we share our hope and truth we found in you. Help us to be motivated by that, Lord. We love you.